All right, we're going to be in chapters 25 and 26 of 1 Samuel. Start heading that direction. Let's, uh, good morning, Jason. Let's just start with prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, as we, come, as we come together this morning as your children, we desire to be taught from your word. We desire that your Holy Spirit would be active and working in our hearts and minds to show us uh, more about you and more about ourselves, how we can be more like Christ in, in our lives. We ask that you just teach us through the lives of David and Saul as we see them played out in 1 Samuel that you would help us to be men and women that have hearts that are like yours. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right. Last week we dealt with chapters 23 and 24 of 1 Samuel. And I'm getting, a lot, I'm getting some reverb here. I don't know if that's me or... There we go. Thank you. Um, and, and actually chapter 24 really belongs with chapter 25 and 26. These three chapters, 24 through 26, are really one section, uh, but that was a lot of material to cover in one lesson, so we broke it up a little bit. It's still a lot of material to have two chapters, but the reason I say that these are um, one section is it's really a literary unit that's focused on David sparing the life of Saul in chapter 24. We'll see it again in chapter 26, and sandwiched in the middle of that we see David spares the life of Nabal. So we see this common theme through these three chapters of David sparing someone's life. But as we explored a little bit last week, what's really going on is David is the one that's being spared. He's being spared from committing sin. He's being spared from taking the life of someone um, and being guilty of his blood. And we'll see that again this week in chapters 25 and 26. What we're seeing is that David, we're seeing that even though he could take action, he doesn't. He's content to wait on the Lord at this point in his life. He's realizing that his rise to the throne is not going to be via a coup, but it's going to be via the Lord handing it to him, which shows a lot of spiritual maturity at this point in David's life. He's respecting the of Saul. For as an authority for David to wait. And as he's waiting, he's being chased and chased and chased. So it's not like he was on bonds waiting for God's will to take place. He was in really difficult circumstances, being chased and pursued. His life was at risk, and he was waiting. So we'll see that even though David has this nomadic life of a fugitive in the wilderness, he is submitting to God's will in it, and he is waiting for God to act on his behalf. So let's explore how David is spared and how he spares others as we dive into chapter 25. I'll get my directions down one of these days. It all depends on which direction you hold this thing. So if I turn it over, I get the wrong direction. So, all right, here we go. All right, chapter 25. And so ch chapter 25 has half of a verse that just seems completely random and out of this, all, all the, this context, and it says, Samuel died, 25.1. Now Samuel died. 
and everyone gets together and mourns for him. And so we see the close of this first major character in 1 Samuel. We see his, his life comes to an end. 1 Samuel started with his birth, and now here near the end of the book we see his death. And I think it's interesting that not only is the timing of his death at this point in the story, but it's placed here right after the writer records for us in chapter 24 that Saul finally admits out loud publicly that David is going to be the next king of Israel. And so we see that Samuel's life's work of transitioning Israel from being um, essentially governed by these intermittent judges to a monarchy, that transition's really complete. We see the transition to the next king is being accomplished. So it seems kind of random that this is, that this is placed here, but I think it is very intentional. Um, and it's not just a matter of when Samuel died, but how he's placed in the story or the account that is given to us. Now, one thing we'll see also in chapter 25 is the, the, the rise and fall of minor characters. We, we talked early in our study of 1 Samuel how the, the, one of the literary devices that the writer uses is to show the rise of a major character, and then as they crest and start to fall, then you see another major character start to take off, and so there's this up and down of major characters. But there's also these minor characters that are doing the same thing, and so it really provides a really a, a, a fascinating um, literary approach. We've seen minor characters, and not minor in the sense of importance, but minor in the sense of how much space they're given in, in writing about them and the role that they played in this story. Um, Jonathan, for example, was, was a, a mini hero, we would call him, and we see him you know, bloom, and then you know, there's a chapter about him, and then he kind of disappears. And we're going to see a mini hero in chapter 25, and this time it's a woman. And it's Abigail, Nabal's wife. And we see a mini, um, what would you call the opposite of a hero? Uh, villain. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. So the mini villain in Nabal himself. And so we're going to see the writer again uses contrast. We've seen all kinds of contrast between David and Saul. We'll continue to see that. Now we're going to see some contrast between Nabal and Abigail. So let's, let's start reading in the second half of verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon, who's, which you may remember from chapter 23. That's where David was being chased around the mountain by Saul, whose business was in Carmel. The, the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, Carmel is not Mount Carmel, which is further north in Israel. This is a town, not a mountain. So we're introduced to this man, his name, verse 3, is Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. Here's the contrast. The wife was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So we learn some important things about him right out of the gate. He is part of the family of Caleb. So this noble man who was partners with Joshua in helping conquer the land, who was courageous and wise, and we see a contrast even in his lineage. The contrast is that he does not behave like Caleb would have behaved. Verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to his young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus shall you greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. 
Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. And so we see here that David <laughs> David requests food from Nabal. Now, how does this strike you? Is this like a, is this a rational request? I mean, is this something you would have done? I mean, how, how does this strike you that David is asking food from Nabal? Doesn't feel completely rational. How come? He's not, Nabal's, make sure people heard that, Nabal's not exactly a well-behaved man. He obviously has a reputation, and David should be trusting God for his provision. Ty. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Wow. He did personalize it. Yeah. Yeah, the last time David asked someone for food was at Nob, which was like bad. Yeah, the whole village gets wiped out. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to pursue that a little bit. So I, now you volunteered, so you're on the spot. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to play Nabal's attorney. So where's the contract, David? There's no contract. You come in here, you start demanding things. So you did something in the wilderness that was your own gratuitous, you know, gift of services. So what does Nabal owe you? There's no obligation, is there? Does that sound, how does that sound? I mean, does it sound ridiculous that I just laid out? Lisa? Okay. I'm proposing a 21st century American view of for sure. Hospitality in the Middle East was different. Hutch? He was very courteous. So I'm going to put that attorney hat on again, play devil's advocate. So, but David, you come marching in here with 10 guys, 10 soldiers. You send 10 men in here. Why do you send 10? You could have sent one to make this request. <laughs> Katie. I knew you were a bad guy from the first Yeah, right. <laughs> right, Katie. You know, it does have an aspect, again, we're reading it through our lens, and, and it feels like intimidation. It feels a little bit like, yeah, to me, I mean, like, hey, this is protection money. We protected you. You should protect it in the future. Guess what? You know? It feels a little bit like that. There's more to this, though. Let's drop down and, and see. We'll get some more sense of this. And we're going to have to jump ahead in the story, and then we'll come back and fill some gaps. Um, so, so, you know what? Let's just talk through the story. 
So Nabal answers the men harshly, and he basically says, who is this David? You know, there's lots of servants running off and, you know, running away from their masters. So it's clear that David is viewed as a fugitive. So you kind of don't blame Nabal for wanting to get involved with an outlaw, okay? But he does answer him harshly. Um, he, he, he sends the men away empty-handed. And then the young men go and tell Abigail in verse 14, hey, you should know this happened and we are all in jeopardy. Um, and here's what they say about the men that guarded, that, that were with them. Verse 15, yet the men were very good to us and we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we, were, as we went with them. So far, it sounds like they didn't steal anything from us. That's kind of how I'm, I'm feeling about this. And so like, okay, reward someone for not stealing from you? Okay, that, and I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm with you, but read verse 16. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were, we were with them keeping the sheep. So here, this is a little different. They were a wall. So it's not like they were just there and like we were feeling like we could be stolen from at any time. They were saying, these men protected us from outside forces. Now, what had just happened in Keilah, was it chapter 23? Remember Keilah? So in Keilah, the Philistines came and they raided this town. And this was common in this, in this time period. Remember Gideon and the Midianites? What did the Midianites do? Every time at harvest, they would like swoop in and they'd steal all the crops. So rather than grow your own, why not steal it from your neighbor? It's like much easier. To, it's like much more efficient. So I, I think this is what's going on, is that they are being protected from outside forces. David knows what it's like to be a shepherd. He knows that, they, that protection is needed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and that is a lot for a shepherd. And here is something he can do that is productive for the economy and for society, for his community, and so he does it. And that is the basis for it. Um, David even says it down in verse 20, uh, 21. David's fuming about this. He says, And now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. I, I don't think it's necessarily implying I didn't steal anything. I think he's saying I protected this from other people stealing it, or you know, maybe wild animals even. So David is saying, you know, I provided this service of protection. And one could argue that perhaps someone else should have been providing the service of protection, which is, John? Yes, he's acting like a king again. He's providing protection at a, from a governmental security kind of standpoint, right? And that is not being respected. Now let's go back and look at Nabal's Nabal's little speech, um, verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? He's, that son of Jesse term is something that Saul uses repeatedly, and it's derisive. There's a little bit of what the, little bit of what the writer is doing is comparing Nabal to, to Saul, to showing that there's a parallel there between them. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now listen to this verse. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to men who, who I do not know, who come from I do not know where? So what's like the main word there? <laughs> my. 
This man is selfish. This man is cheap, I think would be nice. This man is a fool. He's named Nabal because he is a fool. Some one commentator thinks it was a nickname because, like, who would ever name their kid fool? I, I, don't, I don't know, but everyone called him that. So here we see this situation played out. And now the ball is in Abigail's court. So the young men... The young men um, that are servants to Nabal go to Abigail. And why do they go to Abigail rather than going to Nabal? We didn't read it yet, but one of the young men says at the end of verse 17, well, in verse, let me just read 17. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against his all house, including me, the servants are saying, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So what does a fool do? A fool doesn't listen. A fool doesn't listen to advice of his servants because he doesn't have to, and yet he should. So Abigail, Abigail jumps into action. There is no time to lose. She realizes that her whole family, household, all of the servants are in, are in jeopardy, and um, disaster needs to be averted. So she immediately starts packing a picnic lunch for 200 people or more. I, I just can't imagine how this happens. I mean, if you, if you got this call this afternoon, you know, are you going to be able to put together food for 200 out of your pantry? I, I don't think so. The, this, this speaks to Nabal's wealth, that there is this much food on hand and that they're able to put it together. And, and verses 18 and following you know, gives the, 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 the shopping list here. She sends her servants on ahead because she's going to be moving slowly with all of this, this food loaded on donkeys, and she wants to make sure that David gets intercepted. Interestingly, she doesn't tell Nabal what she's doing. Why is that? Because she's not a fool. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What, what, what would Nadeball's response to that have been? Yeah, he would have stopped her, right? It's like, no, you're not going to do that. You know, you're going to give away my food? No way. And as we said before, David is still fuming, and she does intercept David, verse 23. And this is kind of a key section, so let's read it. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. So a, a posture of submission and humility. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Now, the opposite of the selfishness we see in Nabal is the selflessness we see in Abigail. She's saying, put, you, put the guilt on me. Wow, that's incredible to take on your husband's foolishness on yourself, to try to stem the anger of, of the, the foe. It's just incredible loyalty and uh, loyal love, really, for her, uh, for her husband and, her, and, and his house. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant, 25. 
Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. So she just straight up admits that, you know, he's foolish. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to, to my Lord be as Nabal. Now, what did she just do there in verse 26? This shows her wisdom. What did she do? Okay, so she's acknowledging that God is in this. That's big. Yep. What, what else is she doing here? So look at the tense in which she is talking. Because the Lord has restrained you. It's past tense. He has restrained you from shedding blood. Like, hold on, David is still on his way to shed blood. She is projecting the result that she wants here, and she is forecasting that because of who God is, David won't shed blood. This is a wise woman. She is speaking truth to David. And what is David doing? The opposite of what Nabal would not do. He is listening to what Abigail has to say. And then in verse 27, she offers the gift of food. Verse 28, she says, again, this humble posture, please forgive the trespass of your servant. In, in the context, your servant is not Nabal, it is Abigail. So she's saying, I, you know, I have trespassed. I, I mean, she is just like taking all of this on herself. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil should not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Wow, where's the last time we heard about a sling? Goliath, right? So that story got around. And what other story got around? That David has been anointed the next king of Israel. She clearly believes that David is the next king. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because you're fighting God's battles. David listens. He blesses God. He blesses Abigail's discretion. He blesses Abigail. He confesses that God kept him from trying to be his own salvation. This is important. Look in verse 31, the end of Abigail's speech. She says, My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my servant, then remember your servant. 32, and David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Both of them are acknowledging that salvation is from God. It's not from themselves. So he accepts her gift, he accepts her petition, he goes away. Abigail returns to her house finds 
Nabal drunk and feasting in verse 36. She didn't say anything to him at that point when she got home. He apparently doesn't ask her, where were you? In 37, in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So here we see Nabal either has a stroke or a heart attack, um, something like that. And the Lord saves David rather than David saving David. And in 39, through the end of the chapter, we see that David sends and marries Abigail. In 43, there's a summary of David's wives. It says, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galam. David has too many wives. This is a problem. This is not God's plan. This is not what God ordained. God clearly laid out in Genesis his plan for one man, one woman in marriage. It was creation's design. God made a helper fit for Adam. He made only one wife for Adam. And he gave creation instruction. A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, not multiple wives. God, uh, Jesus confirmed this in Matthew 19, one man and one woman is God's plan from creation. So we have this kind of odd situation in which a man after God's own heart is doing things that are not after God's own heart. And we see that, you know, we could say, oh, no one's perfect. We, you know, we can't let David off the hook maybe that easily. But we see that in spite of man's sinfulness, God can still use people. In spite of them acting against his plan, God can still use people to accomplish his purpose in his way. So we see this story of Nabal and Abigail come to an end. Let's move on now to the next chapter. And we'll see that David spares Saul's life again. Remember our old friends, the Ziphites? These are the ones that came and you know, ratted out where David was originally you know, a couple chapters ago, and David said to them, go make sure, or Saul said to them, go make sure of where David is, because he's very crafty, and he moves around a lot, and so I'd like to know every place where he's hiding, and then I'll come and take care of him. They went away, now they came back, and they did exactly what he asked that they do. In verse 1, then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is in the east of Jeshuan, Jeshuan? So Saul goes down to Ziph, he takes 3,000 soldiers again, and he encamps, verse 3, on the hill of Hakalah, right where they said, this is where he is. It says in the end of that verse, David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David sends out spies to figure out what, where, where Saul is and where he is encamped. And he sees that, um, how, how the whole encampment is laid, laid out. Verse 5, David rose and came to the place. So not just spies, but now David sees, uh, now David sees for himself where Saul is. So David observes Saul's camp, and in doing it, he is going to Saul. Up until now, it's always been Saul going to chase after David. Now David actually comes and looks, 
And we're going to see why he would do that. Why get close to the enemy? Why not get as far away from him as possible? Which has been his strategy all along. So now he has a new strategy, and he wants to show Saul that what he is doing is irresponsible, is um, inappropriate, and unnecessary. So David says to two soldiers, Ahimelech, the Hittite, not sure how a Hittite got into this group, but he is, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul. So here we see Abishai being introduced as someone's brother rather than just being introduced as himself, which is kind of interesting. But Zeruah is David's sister. So this is his, these are his nephews. Joab is mentioned here, I think, because Joab becomes a lot more prominent later in the account, um, not in today's account, but in the, in the broader First and Second Samuel account. So Abishai says, I'm happy to go. And they creep into the camp, they sneak right into the camp, and they sneak right up to Saul. I mean, they, there's like 3,000 soldiers dead asleep. And Abner's right there, you know, his, like, his head of army, his general, sort of his bodyguard, um, and who is Saul's uncle, by the way. You may remember him from very early in 1 Samuel. And they come right up to him, and now they have this conversation. Like, while everyone's sleeping, I'm thinking, you know, what do these hushed whispers sound like? You know, but no one wakes up. So let's hear what they have to say, um, starting in verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, does that sound familiar? That sounds like the, what the men in the cave said to David a couple chapters ago, saying, hey, God is handing, you, handing Saul to you on a silver platter. Let's take him out and be done with this. We won't have to run anymore. Now, please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. In other words, this is going to be quick and easy. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die. In other words, he'll die of old age, or he will go down into battle and perish. So three ways that, that Saul is going to die. God's either going to just take him out himself, he's going to die of old age, or he's going to be killed by an enemy. But I'm not going to kill him. The fact that he includes the old age thing, that his day to come will die, I think is remarkable. That's the, that David is saying, I'm willing to wait until this man dies just of natural causes. Verse 11, the, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that it is at his head and the jar of water and let's go. So they do that. And at the end of um, the, t verse 12, it says there was a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. So God arranged all of this. God arranged the protection of David. He arranged that everyone would be so asleep that nobody is waking up while they come in and have this conversation right in the middle of their camp. David maintains that killing the Lord's anointed would bring guilt. So what Abigail had postulated is like, don't kill Nabal and have blood guilt on your hands. David is now echoing. He's saying, I am not going to be guilty of this man's blood uh, because he is the Lord's anointed. He's content to let the Lord take care of it. 
he knew that God would take care of Saul in his time. This time, um, David does not cut off a piece of his robe like he did in the cave, but he takes his spear and water jar. I, I think the fact that it's the spear is significant. When's the last time we heard about Saul's spear? Well, it was stuck in a wall <laughs> after having been thrown at David, I think it was three times. So the same spear that almost killed David, now David takes. And the spear is a symbol of, king, of the king's royalty, of the king's authority. The jar of water is a symbol of life. I mean, out in the wilderness, if you don't have water, you're not going to last a long time. And then in ver- starting in verse 13, we see David starts confronting Saul and um, Abner in particular. Um, so David gets a distance away from him. Um, commentators say that, you know, by the reference to the hills, they think there's a ravine that's in between, which gives David a little space and protection. And David starts calling to, um, to them, and evidently the deep sleep is not happening anymore because someone calling from a distance wakes them up, even though the whispering close by did not. Um, and so David first does not call to Saul, but he calls to Abner. And he does not give him all the niceties that um, he does when he's speaking to, to Saul. He says um, in verse 14 at the end, Will you not answer, Abner? And then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is in the jar of water that was at his head. So David does not answer Abner's question. He does not identify himself. But he lays out what Abner failed to do. And then, starting in verse 17, uh, David rec- or Saul recognizes David's voice and says, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. He does not call him father this time, which he did the last time they were having this conversation. So I don't know if that's, if that's just left out of the text, but um, we see that, that David is deferential. He calls him my lord, O king, but not... Um, not as conciliatory. So Saul recognizes his voice. David then goes on to confront Saul in verse 18. And basically, it's very similar to the speech that he made outside of the cave a couple chapters ago in chapter 24. You know, why are you pursuing me? What have I done? If there's something I've done, let me know and I'll get it right. Um, You know, and, and and, and, and he compares himself the same way that he did the last time. At the end of verse 20, he says, The king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. A single flea. A flea in the mountains. You're going to find one flea in all these mountains. So this flea is insignificant. It's small. maybe irritating. But it is not something that is worth spending time or money pursuing. Verse 21, we see this, this pattern with Saul where when, when 
There's like no other route. He goes the confessional route, right? So verse 21, Saul says, I have sinned. Now this is new. He didn't say before he has sinned. He, he, he talked about how David is more righteous than him and that sort of thing. But here he, he actually says, I have sinned. So that's a positive step. He acknowledges that David treated his life as precious. He promises not to harm him. He recognizes that he acted foolishly. I have that in my notes, but is that in the text? Yes, in 21 at the end. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Now, who else in, our, in today's lesson was acting foolishly? Nabal. So here we see the writer is like very subtly comparing Saul back to Nabal. It's an echo of the fool. So David says, you know, send one of the young men over to, to get your spear. He returns the spear. There's no mention of the water jar. So I don't know if that's just implied that it you know, went together as a package or if he kept it. We don't know. So who knows what um, the result of that is. So David is claiming that God gave Saul into his hand, but that he is trusting God to repay, that he's trusting God for justice. He asks that his life be treated as precious, just like he treated Saul's life as precious. And, he, and Saul ends by blessing David, <clears throat> and he acknowledges that David will be successful. Verse 25, then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So Saul is using the familial language of son, whereas David didn't use the familiar language of father. And so they both go their own ways. Saul once again is back to where he should be. It seems that part of what the Lord is doing here, um, and the, the Lord is doing multiple things with multiple people at the same time. It's just so incredible. But one thing he's doing with Saul is he's giving him multiple chances to repent, to turn from his sin, to trust in God, and to acknowledge perhaps that his sin has cost him the kingdom, has cost him the crown. He kind of does that. He says, you will, you will do many things and will succeed in them. He's, he's seeing that David will be successful and that, um, that God has a plan. Now, as we had referenced um, last week, these incidents of David in the wilderness were the ground for the writing of many psalms. We're three or four minutes here, and we're going to turn to one of those, and it's only seven verses, so we can go through it fairly quickly. It's Psalm 54. And I'm going to need more than 1 Samuel just to do that. Psalm 54. And in the head note to, to the psalm, these non-inspired little aspects, Psalm 54, it says, A mascal of David when the Ziphites went and told Saul is not David hiding among us. So this is really connected to this chapter. And what does David say at this time when he's been turned in by the Ziphites? And see, in the, in the first, I'll just put the outline up and then we'll read the text. We'll see, first of all, he prays to God for rescue. Verse 1, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life, they do not set God before themselves. 
these evil people that have self as their God are, are pursuing me, and God, I need you to rescue me. And then we see movement in this psalm from this prayer, this desperate prayer for rescue, to confidence that God will actually do it. Verses 4 and 5, behold, God is my helper. So he's not speaking directly to God now. I don't know if he's speaking to himself or to the people that are listening. But he says, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies and your faithfulness put an end to them. Key aspect, he will return the evil to my enemies. That's exactly what we see played out in that chapter. That he was so confident in what God was going to do, he's willing to leave the difficult stuff in God's hands. And then it moves from the prayer to confidence to thankfulness for what God will do. Verse 16, with a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. He recognizes the goodness of God's name. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So what do we learn from this psalm that may not, we may not have learned from chapter 26? Um, one thing that, we've, that we probably learned both places is that David is actively seeking the Lord when he learns of trouble. So he hears of trouble, what's the first thing he do? He runs to the Lord. He runs to the Lord and presents his trouble. He lays the trouble at the throne. As David talks to, to God, his prayer progresses into confident expectation of God acting on his behalf. And that confident expectation of God acting in the future is based on the experience that he's had of God acting in the past. What God has done in the past, his faithful, loyal love to David is going to be carried through, and God is going to keep the promises that he made in the past to David in the future. He's thanking God in advance for his deliverance. He knows that he's going to be delivered because God promised him that he was, going to be, he was going to reign. He's going to be the king of Israel. And in the midst of this difficulty, he's able to thank God for his goodness. Wow, what an example. What an example to us. God is teaching David in the wilderness to depend on him, but also to wait on him, and that he's going to keep his promises. So we see really the point of these chapters, a man after God's own heart waits for God to accomplish his perfect will in his perfect time. This is what David, God is teaching David at this time. And what's David's reaction to this? He doesn't quit. He doesn't take his ball and go home. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, I'm tired of running. He'll do that next week. <laughs> but for right now, he doesn't say that. He doesn't lose his temper and throw a tantrum. He falls on his knees before a mighty God and says, God, I need you to solve my problems. So just a small point of application as we close. So when we are in trials and difficulties, how should we pray? Should we pray, God, get me out or God, get me through? God, get me through this difficulty for your glory and for my good. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this example of David and for his trust in you, for his reliance on you to rescue him from the, the hand of Saul, for him waiting on you to accomplish your will in your time. We ask that you would help us to internalize that and to recognize your work in our lives, even when it's difficult. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.